Hello and welcome to the world of intelligence. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. I'm Terry Pato. I'm the director of the Janes Intelligence Unit. On this podcast, we'll be talking to Dr. Martha Whitesmith, who is a research fellow at the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Welcome, Martha. Hello, Terry. Great to have you on this episode. The reason we wanted to get you on the podcast was because when we talk about open source intelligence, a lot of the focus is often on information collection. But information collection is only part of the process. And the, the big part that we always talk about, particularly in our training, is actually what you do with the information once you've got it how you analyze it, how you use it to answer specific questions, how you make a sense of that information to make it relevant to your customers. And that's where we wanted to talk to you because you've done some uh, really interesting research on the role of cognitive biases in the analysis process. And it would be great to talk to you about some of the findings from your research and some of the conclusions that you've reached in terms of how analysis can potentially be improved and actually how some of the techniques people might already be using, structured techniques, for example, maybe aren't as useful as they think they are. I was sort of having a look at one of your previous articles and in there you talked about how you tested one particular technique. So the analysis of competing hypotheses, ACH, which will, I think, be familiar to quite a few people listening. It would be great to get an understanding from you of, of the research you did, how you went about it, and what you found. So um, I'd like to sort of get you to talk about that. Before you do, maybe if you wanted to give a bit of an introduction to yourself as well in terms of some of your background and how you got to that point where you decided you wanted to research this topic. So my background was actually a practitioner experience. I was an intelligence analyst for about five years, mainly looking at terrorism threats and a lot of the training we got on how to do more rigorous analysis or how to avoid bias in our analysis was based around one particular method, um, the ACH method, that was devised by the CIA in, I think, the 1990s and is fairly prevalent across Western intelligence world as being the, the go-to teaching on how to improve uh, the rigour of your work. And my background at that point in terms of academia was that I'd done an MA in philosophy for my sins, uh, specifically looking at um, logic and also the philosophy of epistemology, which is um, how you can be confident that you have justification for believing something to be true and what the standards are for establishing knowledge. So I decided for my PhD to actually put it to the test in an experimental setting and see whether it did what it intended to do, which was initially to reduce the risk of cognitive bias and intelligence analysis by at least making it explicit for peer review. So for people who don't know much about the ACH method, it's a fairly simple analytic method which was inspired by the scientific methodology of eliminative induction, which was developed by Francis Bacon and then developed by other people such as Karl Popper, which is basically a, very, a fairly simple but effective principle that it's a lot easier to prove a hypothesis is false than it is to prove that it's true, because the bar for establishing truth is so high. In many cases, it's considered to be impossible. Even in the um, natural sciences, truth is taken to be a revisionary concept that you accept a theory is true with the best evidence you have. But 
if you get more evidence that changes that, you accept the new answer, but you, you still go with the best argument you have, even if it changes. The truth can change in that sense. Whereas it only takes one piece of good evidence to disprove a theory, but you can have an infinite amount of evidence which supports the the truth of a hypothesis, and then you only need one to come along to show that it's false. So um, it saves a lot of time to try and disprove hypotheses rather than to try and prove them, which is um, a key principle of the scientific method. So, so is, it, is it that process of eliminating different options until you're left with the ones that you think are therefore that, yeah. that you haven't yet eliminated and which still have some supporting evidence so yes. be more yeah. sure perhaps that they're they're more likely to be your answer yes it's it's basically a way of saving time in analysis and uh making uh, the use of the information you have more impactful so the, the key principles of ACH is that you come up with a range of multiple hypotheses and you um, rank the information that you have against those hypotheses. And if there's sufficient information to disprove any of them, you take them out and then hopefully you end up with one left standing. <laughs> and that is the hypothesis which you have the best justification for taking as being true, essentially. So yeah. it's a fairly simple idea based on a very widely used principle that's used within the sciences. So, so far, so good. Mm. But um, because it's an umbrella technique, uh, you can apply different information ranking systems. And some of them will be valid uh, for establishing whether the information you have actually supports the truth or falsity of a hypothesis, whereas others won't. So it's open to, to misuse. Um, mainly, yeah. you know, no, one's no one's intentionally trying to misuse the system, but unless you have that background knowledge about which information ranking systems are appropriate, it can end up being uh, providing a bit of a false sense of rigour. So just for those who aren't necessarily familiar with the technique, and, and again, please correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but essentially you would have a, a, a t you would draw up a table where you've got your hypotheses maybe listed at the top, and then you would list the evidence down the side, and you're essentially ranking the evidence against each hypothesis. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And part of that is is designed to so, uh, to enable you to be more rigorous in how you weigh up evidence against each hypothesis, and like you say, to be able to identify where you've got the bit of evidence that will help you disprove each hypothesis yeah yeah great yeah. I, I i should at this point i should probably apologize to anybody who's been on one of my training courses and has been trained by me in this technique because they're going to get a much more detailed explanation of how it works in this podcast um so hopefully they're listening but yeah this is great okay yeah please um uh, continue so, yeah, that's uh, that's the basis on which ACH is meant to work. Um, so uh, it's it really the um, effectiveness of it depends entirely on what information ranking systems are used. And because it's an umbrella method, it's open. I've seen various different ranking systems applied from basic uh, is information relevant. Um, does it have diagnostic value, which is slightly different to relevance and this um, uh, a technique which originated in the medical sciences. Um, you can use assessments of whether information is credible. 
And I've also seen people try and use um, subjective Bayesianism, which is a form of subjective probability uh, assessment as well. So it's open to using multiple systems, but also you can use more than one if if they're not trying to do the same thing. Um, so, for instance, you can combine diagnostic value with credibility of information to give separate scores. But anyway, so. My research was uh, attempting to test in an experimental setting whether ACH was actually effective in reducing the risk of cognitive bias. Um, so, how, so how, how does it work in terms of, or in theory, how should it work in terms of reducing the impact of cognitive bias? That was a question I had because from right. my background in philosophy, I couldn't see any, any part of the design that would provide mitigation for the risk of bias is there a challenge there there in that you know within the modern world we are faced with many many more decisions to make and people suffer from decision fatigue and the sort of cognitive burden of having to make lots of decisions actually is is quite wearisome so um so yes uh, the research i did um was trying to test you know you can come up with an assessment as uh, whether ACH uh, would work or not, but you really need to put it in practice to see whether it does, because it might have something in it inherently that you haven't spotted which could work. So we put it to the test, working with the Cabinet Office and their team, the um, professional heads of intelligence analysis who leads uh, coordination of training for intelligence uh, analysts across the UK community. Um, we asked them if they would be willing to to provide their up to date training in ACH so that um, we were making sure that uh, we were testing um, a version of ACH, which was actually which was actually going to have some impact for for the intelligence community today, rather than picking one um, available in open source that isn't widely used, given that there's such a proliferation of different versions. So uh, the um, PHIA very kindly offered to help and provided um, the training in ACH, how they taught it which I think was um, the inversion they use is probably the most commonly used across the, the, the Five Eyes world, at least, or at least the Western world. Great so, uh, yeah, um, yeah um, so that version specifically uses uh, diagnostic value of information as, as a ranking system, and that's um, the only information ranking system it uses. So um, When you say oh, diagnostic value, so what do we, yeah. what, what do we mean by that? Um, I can't remember so basically, diagnostic value is um, information that allows you to choose between um, two or, or more hypotheses. Basically, it will only apply to one and not another. So it's used in the medical sciences to differentiate between possible diagnoses. Uh, when you look at symptoms, you can say, well, this symptom applies to this condition, but not that condition. So if this symptom is present, it points to a hypothesis rather than the B hypothesis. It's basically um, a, a, you form mutually exclusive hypotheses that particular bits of evidence will only apply to one and cannot apply to another. Got it. And I think this is this hints at, I think, an area where. Um the, well, that people have to be aware of when they are going to use the ACH technique, that it it works really only in contexts where you can have those mutually exclusive hypotheses. Would that be fair? Um, it depends. Um, 
it depends. I guess, um, it depends on how it's used. <laughs> well, no, I guess it, it it depends on how complex the hypotheses are. I would say because some hypotheses can be as simple as a single sentence or a single premise, whereas others contain multiple premises. Um, say the difference between if you have um, hypothesis A is ISIL are present in Syria only versus hypothesis B of ISIL are present in Iraq only. Those would be two mutually exclusive hypotheses. Whereas um, you could have an ACH uh, where you're comparing hypothesis A, which is um, uh, ISIL are trying to develop chemical weapons for use in an external attack against the West versus the hypothesis of ISIL are trying to develop chemical weapons to use in an attack in Syria or Iraq. Uh, you could then have information which supports the truth of ISIL developing chemical weapons, but doesn't give any indication of where they intend or how, if they intend to deploy it. That information would provide support for both hypotheses in part. Yes. But so so it wouldn't differentiate, but it would still be relevant. So it would um, be relevant information, but not diagnostic, if that yeah. makes sense. So so yeah. it really depends how you set up the hypotheses, um, mm. and whether they're single premises that are mutually exclusive or not. Um, so, yeah, there are there are various different ways you can do ACH. Got it. Right. OK. Quite complicates your critique. Yeah, <laughs> um, no doubt. Okay. Sorry, I've just realised that um, I, uh, I uh, made an error about um, what I said that the uh, the ACH version, which the PIA, the PHIA teach only uses one system. It also uses the uh, the system of credibility of information. So it is two systems. So it's diagnostic value and how credible is that information. So right. that was the version which was taught as part of the study we did. Um, and the so it's sort of applying a weighting, therefore, in terms of giving more uh, significance to information which is uh, maybe has a higher rating credibility yes. and is more diagnostic. Yes. Yeah. yeah. OK, got it. Uh, which is which is really the best way to do it. We can get on to later. But essentially, um, unless you have a ranking system that involves uh, assessing the, the quality of the information you have in terms of the epistemic support it gives, whether it's credible or not. Um, ACH doesn't really have the kind of rigor you want it to. In information could be, could, could be perfectly relevant, but unless there's any reason for you to believe it to be true, um, it's, it, its worth hasn't been established. Essentially. Um, yeah. uh, relevance doesn't necessarily guarantee truth or provide any support for believing something to be true. Um, yes, got it. And, and equally, I suppose, if you've got information where you can't you can't verify it or you're not sure how credible it is, if it's yeah. still highly relevant, it, it yeah. may still be useful. Yes. Yeah. Um, so um, the study I did focused on two particular types of cognitive bias. And there have been dozens that have been identified in uh, the social sciences or in psychology. So um, I picked the two that had actually been identified as being involved in uh, previous intelligence failures that were influenced by analytical decisions, um, specifically uh, the um, 
the decision to go to war with Iraq in 2003 and also the Yom Kippur War decision as well. So these two biases have been identified in official reviews of intelligence failures influenced by analysis. So there is some reason to believe that they can affect intelligence analysis. Uh, so Very interesting. We, yeah, we were we were trying to set up the study to make it as realistic and relevant as possible, given the amount of choice you have for biases and versions of ACA. <laughs> so um, sure. these two um, biases are serial position effects and confirmation bias. So serial position effects is basically where um, the position of the piece of information in the sequence which you process all the information you have. Uh, has an influence on uh, the decisions you make. So specifically, it's information that you process first or last towards the end. Um, uh, and there are two types of serial position effects that have been identified in quite a lot of research in the social sciences, mainly to do with memory, but also to do with belief formation. And that's primacy and recency. So primacy is where the information you process uh, early on um, in a piece of analysis or decision making has a disproportionate influence on your beliefs compared with uh, the information you process during the middle or towards the end. And recency is where the information you read towards the end has a disproportionate effect over the information you read first and in the middle. And um, is, is, is one of those or does one of those have a greater effect than the other? Because I mean, this, I find this particularly fascinating and it's something that we've touched on whenever we've talked to people in our training courses about um, cognitive biases and, and, and analysis and, and all of the issues that occur within an analysis. And um, I think we highlighted primacy. I yeah. think um, in terms of the, the recency of the information, I, don't, I think that maybe gets overlooked sometimes. So it, was there one or other that you found more uh, significant? Yeah, I don't think um, you can compare them in terms of significance in terms of the impact they have, because both of them will basically mean that um, the beliefs you have will be influenced by chance rather than rigour. Um, sure. But primacy is the prevalent one that's identified in scientific research. So I think I, I did a meta-analysis of all of the, the relevant studies I could find and it, which involved over 12,000 participants. Wow. No, sorry, 12, okay. Yeah, 12, over 12,000 12, participants and somewhere between 80 and 90 percent of the, of the results was primacy rather than recency. So so primacy Got is it. much more prevalent, um, whereas recency is less common. So in terms of impact, uh, people are more likely to be um, uh influenced by, by primacy in analysis in, in analysis than, than recency and the meta-analysis I did looking at what uh, analytical conditions increase the risk um, showed a correlation between um, primacy and uh, tasks where you had a large volume of information to process and recency correlated with tasks where there was uh, a short amount of information to process so i think the the longer you have uh, to conduct analysis over time and the more information you have um increases the risk of primacy 
if that makes sense. So yeah, definitely, that's that's really interesting. So yeah. yes, I think I, I think it is it is right to focus a bit more on primacy purely because the risk is so much higher. But yes, recency shouldn't be overlooked either. Mm. And, okay. Uh, yeah, I think um, a lot of it comes down to understanding what what analytical factors increase the risk of each to know which one you are more likely to have been subject to. But the actually the the um, chances of you being subject to serial position effects when you form beliefs is is surprisingly high. So it's definitely something to be aware of. Mm, OK. And and that's n- not necessarily conducting complex analysis. It could be something as simple as judging the length of a stick. Uh, the range of experiments wow. covered everything. For, um, a lot of them focused on forming impressions of other people from just reading descriptions or having descriptive words being applied to one person rather than another. So even in everyday decision making and very simple beliefs and judgments, um, primacy is a big deal as well, which is quite interesting. It's, it's not just the kind of analysis we think of. Um, is being affected by these biases. It's pretty much every situation in which you have to process information and make some sort of judgment on it uh, will be subject to serial position effects. That's, that's so interesting. I, 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 you know, when you talk about that effect uh, uh, being so, per- so pervasive, effect, you know, in terms of what it does, in terms yeah. of when it, when we experience it it's not just when we're sitting down dealing with sort of complex questions but it is yeah much more a day-to-day occurrence you you think actually this is something that people should be much more aware of and i don't think people are yes i I think the biggest one for me was realizing that actually um the rules of um courts and jurors in in uh cases of who who gets to go first in in presenting the case whether it's the defense or the um, pr- prosecution. Um, essentially, whoever gets to go first has has a higher chance of influencing the the jury. So the whole concept of fairness in the court of law goes out of the window just by our biology. Wow. Impact for, for civil life, which I, I personally find terrifying. The I, I think that is incredible. Yeah. We have such a such an idea idea of human rationality that we don't it isn't always as, as secure as we would like it to be <laughs> especially when, yeah especially when it comes to intelligence uh, decision making the uh, degree of impact on human life that can come out of intelligence failures we've already seen decisions to go to war um uh, prevention of terrorist attacks on which can be a huge scale as we're seeing with not 9-11 the idea that you have analysts worldwide who are responsible for predicting those kind of events but just are battling like everybody else against the the wiring of mm. of your brains and rational processes and that essentially a large degree of it comes down to what intelligence they receive first <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is quite remarkable, isn't it? And uh, yeah. I, I think I seem to remember a quote. I think it was from Sherman Ken um, about how intelligence analysts should have 
better training in, in the rigor of doing analysis than you know normal people and so should be better equipped to guard against these things but yeah. i think i think you know and and uh, as you're about to describe i guess what, what's sort of borne out in some of the research is that with all the you know with all the training that has been applied to date i don't think anyone's quite cracked it in terms of yeah. enabling intelligence analysts to be a step ahead of you know and uh, somebody who's not trained yes well it's also i think managing expectations about how far you can train people to overcome what is a very human and natural weakness in cognitive processes how how can you train people to guard against subconscious processes that happen to everybody it's mm. it's is it fair to to have that expectation as well is another question i think um you always see our, true yeah our, after intelligence failures um in the official um investigations afterwards there's always something coming out about you know um the public have to have a certain understanding that we can't uh that the intelligence services can't prevent every single attack and it's just um and that's just human uh sometimes you you're right and in, uh, you know and that's in cases where for the most part they won't have a complete picture obviously i mean that's the yeah. nature of intelligence but even where they have got quite good information yeah it's it's so easy for analysts to make mistakes yeah that they miss things and that things go awry because of that but yeah, yeah and, and and so yeah i mean so you've, you've talked about the serial effects uh sorry um yeah. Uh, positioning effects of when when we see information or when we receive information yeah. um and then you would you'd also in your research looked at cognitive biases C confirmation bias confirmation biases yeah. yes um basically confirmation bias is when um you form a leading hypothesis which you think is the most likely and then information which you receive after that point that doesn't agree or directly contradicts that hypothesis um, doesn't have an equal impact on your belief um, adjustment process as the original information that led you to um, focus on that hypothesis. So it means that valid information that doesn't agree with your underlying belief gets either dismissed or uh, isn't given the same weighting um, in your consideration. And this is all, all, all a subconscious process. You don't realise that you're doing it. But yes, it's, it's basically um, you apply a biased way of processing subsequent information once you've formed a focal hypothesis. And that can happen in different ways. Either you dismiss information entirely or it's not given the same credence does um, that potentially also lead analysts to simply not perceive information that sort of disagrees with what they think is the likely answer uh, yeah it as, could in, do, as in they, it, they just sort of miss it yeah it, it, it could mean that it, it could lead people to um believe very honestly that information isn't relevant when it actually is mm. Got it. So um, it's uh, and um, there isn't as much research on it uh, as there is serial position effects. But the the research that is available when you look at it, the um, prevalence 
isn't quite as high as serial positional effects, but it's still pretty high. I think from memory, it was roughly between 70 and 80 percent of the participants in the sample I had, which was about 1,200 participants uh, exhibited some form of confirmation bias. Wow. So it's, it's, it's still a big risk. Definitely. Yeah. OK. Interesting. So we put the ACH methods taught by PHIA to the test against those two biases. And the results were that there was zero impact of ACH in reducing bias. I think um, the um, so uh, just, 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 just to go back over that. Sorry, Martha, just go back over that. Zero impact. Zero impact. Yes, wow. the the um, the number of participants in the ACH group that exhibited bias was exactly the same as the um, the um, control group. So there wasn't even any statistical difference to test for statistical significance. There was no, no difference whatsoever. So unfortunately, that was a very damning. <laughs> that is remarkable because you know, as a technique, it makes it makes sense. Yeah. You know, you, when you when you when you sort of look at it and you understand it, you think, especially if you're especially if you are looking for a solution that will help you guard against some of those issues that you yeah. you talked about there it really is something you look at you think you know what i can i can make use of this i can apply it to my work and um it, it should help me make my analysis more rigorous and make sure i'm not falling foul of uh, any of these potential um pitfalls and um or, or you know risks that could, could occur within my my thinking um but actually it doesn't doesn't seem to have that uh, benefit and I think the the weakness is really in the information ranking systems used to process the information rather than the um, the concept of ACH itself. It's based, uh, when uh, the way I designed the study was to to be able to have markers which flagged up when bias was happening, but also identify when it was happening in judgments of credibility and when it was happening for judgments of diagnostic value. And it was able to influence both of those ranking systems. Um, wow. So so it's basically the information ranking systems you use, you will still be making subjective um, sub subconscious judgments uh, in what scores you give. So there isn't I mean, anything. That's that's, that's really interesting because I think what. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but I think that's really interesting because that's one of the things, you know, I think we've always tried to highlight in our training is that when people are using this, um, this method, they've got to be conscious that if it's used improperly, they could actually in further embed their, um, you know, confirmation bias, et cetera, and, yeah. and some of these issues. And it makes it harder in a way to see past it because you, you know, you've got, a method which in your mind has maybe led you to a conclusion which you think oh well i've rigorously tested this or i've gone through this process yeah. which makes my analysis that much more valid um and actually it's done the opposite yeah well it, it, it it's not necessarily done the opposite it's just um it just gives the the appearance of rigor where yeah. where there isn't it, it it doesn't provide any guarding against the subconscious process that would um involve bias anyway it just means that you're putting it in a framework that other people can look at. But one of the uh, basically ACH was designed to to make it um, obvious to other people 
looking at your working where bias might have happened. But mm -hmm. unless you actually have a process of, of recording the degree to which each piece of information influences someone's belief in the hypothesis, irrespective of what scoring they give it, you can't really identify whether bias might have happened because the bias, the only way in which you can identify whether bias has happened is by seeing whether people um, have given uh, have have given say 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 if you're if you're looking for whether confirmation bias has affected how people rank the credibility of information, you would need to to be able to compare the scores that people give to information based on um, the degree to which it strengthens their belief in different hypotheses. Because if um, if they score the first piece of information they have as medium credibility, but it leads them to to give an an 80 an percent scoring confidence and then um, another piece of information which they read uh, later on is scored medium, but it only impacts their judgment by say a five percent margin that's the same score of credibility but it has a lower impact on their belief process so you you would need to actually see um almost like incorporate um uh, an analyst confidence in their belief or like a separate belief score to actually right. identify where those um where bias might have occurred because that, that's, that's really the only way you can do it. Um, so without knowing how much influence a piece of information actually had on the analyst's personal belief in each hypothesis, uh, the scores won't tell you much because just because two things have been ranked as high credibility, low or medium, it doesn't mean that they've had the same proportionate um, impact on the belief formation. If that makes sense. It does. That is very interesting. So the, so the critical component there is the, the confidence in the scoring of the yeah. sort of credibility and relevance. Yeah. Or you can have cases where um, most of the participants would have scored one one particular piece of information as low credibility and then a minority score it as high. And those and that minority of people happen to have a strong initial degree of belief very early on about a particular hypothesis that that information supports which has led them to give it a high credibility scoring because it's in line with what they already think is true and that's a, a subconscious process but it means that the bias can influence how you rank information anyway so the the, the um, difficulty is trying to find, find a way of getting people to subconsciously rank in an objective manner. I'm not sure if that's possible. Um, yeah. So, so I think uh, if ACH um, is intended to, to identify bias, you need to be able to record the degree of impact that information has on on whether someone believes something is true because they they will be subconsciously forming an opinion from the from the very first piece of information they read and that will affect how they judge 
information which they then get and put into the system. So if you can't guard against bias affecting the way you rank information, then you aren't providing any uh, mitigation for bias happening by using ACH. And the current versions of it don't provide any way of showing where bias might be happening. So even if you have peer review, you can't flag where 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 bias might have occurred. You can you can have um, difference of of opinion about whether the the scores given to particular bits of information are accurate and objective, which is useful. So it it makes um, it makes your decision making process explicit for peer review, which does have a really good benefit. Because so to do that though, presumably. Uh, so let's say if I'm creating or if I'm using this process to help me address uh, a particular question, yeah. if as I'm going through it and I'm adding evidence and I'm you know, scoring that evidence, um, yeah. I've almost got to do it in a way so that whoever comes and reviews it provides that peer review to help me make sure that you know I'm not uh, being biased in, in, in any particular way. Um, it's got to be done in a way that that reviewer can see how I've made those decisions at each step of the process. Yeah. Right. So they've almost got to be able to replay it as if it were a video, if that makes sense. Yeah. And also it's it's only really going to be effective if you've captured the, the judgment making process when it happens, because the way memory works is you revise your memory of events anyway, according to what happens afterwards without realising as well. So how you remembered the, the reasons you remember having for giving a particular piece of information a particular diagnostic value or cred, credibility score might be completely different from the ones that actually influenced you so unless you have it in in quite a very complicated experimental condition where after each piece of information you ask the participants to write down their justification for their scoring or why they gave it that score um it might not tell you the actual original thinking anyway right yes but at that point i mean once you once you add that level of additional effort to the technique it becomes incredibly cumbersome yes and you're sort of losing that initial benefit you're talking about of trying to speed up decision making yeah it it isn't really practical (laughs) (laughs) yes so there is a big question of of how you can adapt ach to actually identify uh, where bias might have occurred um, but doing it in a way that doesn't mean you spend your entire professional life <laughs> conducting an ACH um, is a big one. And I think a lot of it will come down to um, making it a automated computer technique. You know, click this button, do this score and asking analysts to record their degree of belief in each of the hypotheses after they put a bit of information in. And then having um, a way of uh, the electronic system, IT system, being able to to flag where um, where biases might have occurred just by discrepancies in the um, the scoring system and the degree of belief. You could you could do it that way, but um, I think that is really the only practical way you could do it. Interesting, but um, even then, potentially you would only use it for those occasions when the decision that you're going to make off the back of it might be quite critical rather than for every sort of situation where you've got a, a question to answer. 
Yeah, um, I think, yeah, you would have to have um, some sort of understanding of because uh, uh, te testing for bias in every single judgment you make during a process of analysis isn't practical because you will have subject matter experts who will be looking at a particular group answering multiple exam questions over a course of, you know, maybe even 10 years. Mm. Uh, you can't expect them to run an ACH on every single decision and run an ACH over the course of 10 years. It's just not feasible. So yeah, having some sort of benchmark for um, the kind of uh, decision making you want to apply it to. But even then, you have to have that in place before you start your belief formation process. You can't implement an ACH halfway through on a topic where analysts already have established beliefs about the topic right. because their prior beliefs will influence the judgments they make when using the when ranking new information mm. and so <laughs> you've almost got to get as well as doing the technique or at the outset really you've got to get people to um identify their assumptions yeah, and that's um, as, as as challenging. You're still asking people mm. to tap in, in into their subconscious. <laughs> of course, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Make explicit to themselves and anyone else. And um, <laughs> I'm not really yeah, sure. I wonder, if, I wonder if there's some form of psychometric test you could use to apply <laughs> at the start. Then even then, you're adding another level of complexity <laughs> to the technique. And yeah, it, it starts to require a hypnotist. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Maybe that's where this technique goes next. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I think knowledge about how biases impact our thinking can probably help give um, people an understanding of where ACH can have benefits and what situations it should be employed in rather than assuming that you can deploy it in any situation at any point during a process of forming beliefs and it will give you the rigor you want and um guard against bias i think is is at least helpful definitely i think that's actually really valuable and from my perspective i know i found in the past when i you know first sort of started to learn more about the role of bias and then the sort of subconscious um, elements you've talked about that it made me it made me more aware of them even if it's difficult to guard against the effects but mm. i think it, what it does or, or certainly where it helped me and i don't know it'd be great to get your thoughts on this but as an intelligence analyst i found it made me more humble and yeah. more willing to accept when others would critique my work perhaps or come up with yeah. alternative solutions or point out you know where i might i might have actually been biased in assessing a piece of information yeah. um, so i don't know if you found it to to have that those sorts of benefits um as part of the the meta analysis we did um, we did look at the um whether uh people being held accountable for their judgments had any influence on b whether they were affected by bias or not um the idea that if you actually have to provide justification for why you came up with your assessment um maybe that would help guard against bias than if you just provide it anonymously and there's no consequence so, so I think um, that's probably the closest we came to looking at that kind of 
degree of confidence is um, comparing situations where analysts were aware before they started the task that there would be some sort of consequence or accountability for their judgments, um, or at least they would be publicly linked to their judgments. Um, but unfortunately, and very surprisingly for me, that didn't have a statistically significant effect in reducing serial position effects. And unfortunately, the um, sample size uh, of research available on confirmation bias wasn't really um, wide enough in terms of testing accountability to allow us to identify whether there were any. So a lot more research needs to be done to see whether holding people accountable in some way for their beliefs does actually reduce bias. But so far, it doesn't. <laughs> oh, OK. OK. So what... But I think yeah. it does make people more open to, um, as you say, uh, peer review of their work. But um, the other interesting thing is as part of a follow up um, study I'm doing into looking at biases, um, basically extending the meta analysis research to a lot more biases than just serial position effects and um, confirmation bias. There's a type of bias called the backfire effect, which is mm. um, a form of confirmation bias where having people challenge beliefs you already hold or question or, or presenting disconfirming evidence has um, a backfire effect in that it ends up strengthening the original belief that someone had. Ah, yes. Um, and it all comes down to the way in which information is preserved, uh, the way in which disconfirming information is presented and how far the belief that people have has some sort of emotional significance to them, how, how much they are attached to it in a sense of... Um, uh, so um, if you try to um, present disconfirming evidence as a challenge analysis function to an analyst who is particularly attached in some way, either emotionally or linked to their sense of identity for a particular hypothesis, then it could actually backfire and only serve to strengthen their original belief. And if their original belief is false, then the whole point of challenge analysis has the opposite effect in which it's intended. <laughs> so, that's really interesting. I think, I think we've probably all seen occasions where that's happened. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's some, it's, it's like um, the um, anti-vaccine movement. If people are, it, it is a very emotive topic because um, essentially it's people trying to do the best thing to, to protect their children from harm, um, trying to change anti-vaccination attitudes is particularly challenging because of the emotive content. So it comes down to how how do you do it? And in a lot of those kind of cases, presenting information in a very scientific, clinical, rational way doesn't have any impact. It's if you present it in an emotive way that doesn't um, cause uh, confrontation or friction for the emotive reason of the original belief, then it can help persuade people's minds. But it's knowing how to present information in order to actually persuade people to to change their minds is another field entirely. So even even having challenge function is complicated, <laughs> depending on 
how far people are wedded to their original beliefs, how open minded they are. And if they have a particular belief that they think is true over others, um, what's what's the basis of that connection? Really interesting. It is extraordinarily complicated trying to get analysis to be a rigorous process and it's it's difficult i think a lot of people look to the sciences when they try and come up with methods to apply or adapt for intelligence analysis because the sciences have the comfort of it's difficult to argue against the evidence because the evidence quality is of such a way it is empirical once you have that level of um, reliable data it's just a question of how you interpret it you can't argue the data but you can argue about the interpretation of course Mm. but with intelligence quite a lot of the information you're getting is um, testimony it's 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 from human sources it's um, relying on people's memory of it could be deliberately deceptive Yes, it, it yeah. could be a piece of deception. Yeah. Um, so you don't have the same level of quality of information. You, mm. you don't just have to worry about how, how you interpret the information. You have to worry about establishing the quality of the information in the first place. So there is so much I, I personally think and um, the research I did, I think, would back it up is that intelligence analysis it runs a greater risk of being influenced by bias um than other areas such as the sciences not not in every case but it's certainly one of the more vulnerable areas just by the quality of information that you have to work with i think you've hit on a great point there and i think it's one that's really underrated and don't and people don't sort of think about enough is that intelligence analysis is is it is a different different discipline yeah. It, 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 the, the quality of the information, as you said, it can be so varied and um, it's difficult to, I think, sometimes take techniques and apply them from other contexts. But at, at the same time, I wouldn't rule out, you know, that people should look at other fields and try to learn things and apply them to intelligence analysis. No. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's just adapting things, I suppose, or, or making yeah. sure that we understand the limitations of those techniques and we don't yes. sort of see them as a, yeah. uh, a solution to, to problems that maybe they don't actually solve. I think that that is that is a very good point, and especially one I would agree with coming from the background of, of philosophy. A lot of analytical methods have been devised for a very specific type of analysis or very specific circumstances which means that their application to intelligence is limited and to use them properly you have to understand how they work in their original context to know when you can and can't use them in intelligence otherwise you end up um, thinking that you're applying the rigor that you would have in the original context say using scientific methods Scientific methodology has the rigor because of the quality of information it deals with. Um, but if you just blanketly apply it to intelligence analysis without taking into account the quality of information, then you can have the impression that you have the same level of vigor, which you don't of rigor, which which you don't. It also comes down to when people try and cross over um, judgments of um, prob- probability and say, well, if we can somehow use probability as a predictive tool for events that will give us the same rigor but there's only a limited number of circumstances in which you can actually apply a probability analysis to intelligence Mm. that would give you the same rigor or 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 any level of rigor at all i mean most most of the events in intelligence that you're trying to to predict are 
by their nature un unrepeatable or black swans. And mm. the only way in which you could do probability with any rigor is if it's the kind of event which happens frequently and you have a background set of data on the frequency of its occurrence to then project what the next <laughs> um, well, might uh, might look like. Yeah, but it, in 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 the context of intelligence, it's not often that somebody's asked to try and predict when a predictable event is going to occur. <laughs> Yeah, it's so, yes. Well, <laughs> unless it's the kind of well, I guess you could have within um, uh, uh, military intelligence analysis where you're up against an enemy that conducts attacks in particular locations very regularly. Then you right. would yes. argue yeah, to say, well, based on the frequency propensity that this group has used before over the last ten years, say, say Al Al Qaeda in Yemen have been going long enough, and um, you could probably use some sort of limited probability to to say, well, chances are the next counterinsurgency activity of this group will be in this area and it will use these methods um, and it will happen at a frequency of X per, per month. So, but it really is those kind of situations where you have um, an act which you can arguably define as being repeated or repeatable, but being asked to, to predict the unlikelihood of Al-Qaeda conducting the Twin Towers attack is an entirely different ballgame. Yes. Yeah. And likewise, I think a lot of other uh, situations, intelligence anal analysts would be asked to look into or to monitor. Um, yeah. No, you're exactly right. I think it's uh, it, it is a different ball game entirely and um yeah there, there's there, there's no so i guess there's no easy sort of shortcut to trying to avoid um trying to avoid biases and trying to avoid some of the, the some sort of subconscious uh effects that you've talked about yeah. has there been anything though that you've come across whether it's in your your sort of research or reading around it um or or in fact from your, your own experience where you found that any techniques that you know, analysts and those particularly if I'm thinking in our audience who are having to do this type of work where they are looking for ways to try and make sure that they're not, you know, for <laughs> they're not um, you know, employing their own cog uh, confirmation bias, etc. Is there anything that you've come across where people can apl apply it maybe to their work? I think the only way, um, well, from 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 the perspective of my research, the only way you can really have it have a chance of knowing the risks of bias or knowing what conditions exacerbate the risk um, and which ones reduce the risk and then using that to try and make sure that as an analyst you are working under the optimum environment possible and where you are working under conditions that have been associated with an increased risk in particular biases that can be used to um, do targeted challenge function and peer review. Or if right. if you manage a team of analysts and you know that they've been doing a particularly important piece of work under adverse circumstances that are associated with a risk and bias and you know which bias it is, you can use that information to try and say, well, actually, if, if it's, um, uh, say, if they've been conducting a piece of assessment that's based on reams and reams of information like the um, 
trying to analyze whether um, Iraq were producing biological weapons with with the curveball um, source. Um, mm. That was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of reports over a long period of time um, led to that assessment. So if you knew the risks of serial position effects and that primacy mm-hmm. is a high risk bias and that it is exacerbated by the more information you have to process, then you could you, you might have been able to use that information to say, right, we need to look at the first information these these analysts received about this judgment and use that as a way of challenging their current beliefs on it. Um, or what kind of information might have had um, a disproportionate impact or resulted in bias? Right. Yeah. And, and, so- yeah. So that review of it is key. Really. Yes, it's yeah. it's it, it's it's knowing which biases are most likely to have um, been in effect, and then you can better tailor a challenge function, especially if there's hundreds, if 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 there's so much intelligence information to do an external peer review for. At least it can help you identify what pieces of intelligence might have led to um, a bias, and then pick those ones to, to challenge. It basically will give you a greater efficacy in challenge function, just like a limitive induction makes um, trying to um, uh, narrow down the field of possibilities more effective. Knowing the risks uh, will hopefully help challenge function more effective. And so um, the meta-analysis I did help to identify uh, some of the conditions that exacerbate serial position effects and the ones that exacerbate confirmation bias. So at least that might help um, Got it. Yeah. people identify, uh, well, one, the, um, the um, chances that they were subject to either, which is quite high, okay. um, knowing that is is he- helpful enough, because I think people, um, I certainly, as as an analyst, wasn't aware that the char- the risk of bias was that high. If I'd known that, that there was an 80 to 90 percent chance that I would be affected by primacy in my judgments, <laughs> yeah. in my professional judgments on a consistent basis, then I might have um, sought challenge uh, for my judgments more frequently. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's remarkable when you when you put it to that number. I mean, I'm just sort of you know, you know I'm laughing because I think it's 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 astonishing really um, that it is such a high percentage and um, yeah. that you know people probably aren't aware of this and they aren't doing anything at all to try and mitigate the effect. So as I said, if if there's something that can be done, I think to make intelligence analysts more aware of these issues, yeah, then maybe they can use use challenge analysis more effectively. So yeah, yeah I guess that's. Um, that's good advice. That's that's useful, I think, for people to take away from uh, from this. And um, you know, for for anyone who's who's listening to this podcast, who uh, you know, hopefully has enjoyed this discussion as much as I have, because it's been really fascinating. Um, where where can they go next to read more about this or find out more about this? I know you've you've got a uh, a book coming out soon, which distills a lot of your research. Um, when yes. uh, when is that coming out? And can you give us some more details about it? Um, yes, uh, it's basically um, encompasses all of the theoretical critiquing I did of ACH as well as the empirical study and the meta-analysis. So it's all of the research that we've been discussing during this podcast is in this book. Um, the, the working title is Belief, Bias and Intelligence, Challenging the ACH Method. 
Um, it's coming out uh, in September this year as part of Edinburgh University's press series called Intelligence, Surveillance and Secret Warfare. And in addition to that, there are two articles that have already been published detailing the results of the study that I did with the PHIA and also of the meta-analysis I did into the particular conditions that increase the risk of serial position effects and confirmation bias. So um, that information is actually already out there, but um, the book will will wrap it up with the um, philosophical arguments about why ACH um, may not be as uh, rigorously uh, applied as we hope it would. So um, I can send you the details if you want to add that in. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, happy to happy to share that with uh, anyone in our audience who's interested, for sure. And I will be um, I'll be keen to uh, have a look at that once it's out. Um, OK, great stuff. Thanks. Thanks so much, Martha, for taking the time to join us today. This has been as a really fascinating discussion. Um, I've got a particular interest in this area of the whole process of you know, how intelligence um, is done and I think it's something that is probably under well it's it's not focused on enough in open source intelligence specifically and I think yeah. it's something that we, we want to really bring into the discussions around open source intelligence and how it's done um, to make sure that people are aware of the you know how some of these issues can affect their analysis really yeah. so yeah thanks so much for for coming and joining us and um, uh, yeah hope Hopefully we can follow up and, and talk more in the future about how, uh, you know, your research develops and any other conclusions you, you, you reach. And um, perhaps at some point we'll come across a technique that cracked it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think um, uh, the, uh, the research project I'm currently doing is hoping to extend the meta-analysis to about 50 more um, biases that affect belief formation. So it should, providing that there's enough underlying research for me to <laughs> sit on the process it should give a more comprehensive um, list of factors or understanding of where you could um, identify risks that's superb okay great we'll look forward to hearing more about that in the future <laughs> thank you all right thanks martha that's all we've got time for today thanks for listening please leave a rating on apple podcasts or on your preferred podcast listening platform and for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development go to janes.com forward slash osint training.